everybody. Hi, and welcome back to the Irish Passport. And today we are bringing you a special bonus episode in honour of our National Day. A day, in fact, that has become a bit of an international festival. It is, of course, St. Patrick's Day. Lo a And today we are going to be looking at the origins of the holiday. We will be looking into the stereotypes, good and bad, that surround this festival. And I'm going to tell you the little-known backstory to how the Irish pub took over the world. Okay. <laughs> I have been told that... Uh... It makes a difference who the uh, the person behind the bar is. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the people are very particular about mm-hmm. who is pouring. Yeah. That's right. Your Guinness. Am I right about that? Uh, oh, yeah. 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 The perfect fight. So, yeah. can people vouch for this guy? Yeah. So, Tim, what was St. Patrick's Day like for you when you were growing up in Barna? It was really fun, actually. We'd usually go into Galway City to see the parade. Mm-hmm. And like most Irish parades, you know, it was mostly school bands and majorettes and the like. I think both my sisters were majorettes at one point. Cute. Uh, <laughs> yeah. There was, there was definitely something a little bit more sombre about it, I think, than there was today. You know, a little bit militaristic. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's because Ireland doesn't really yet have an official Independence Day. So it kind of stands in for that um, often. And you'll often have army bands and police brigades and the like. Mm-hmm. Uh, I definitely remember my grandmother wearing a very formal garland of shamrock on her lapel and it looked very dignified and smart, you know. Mm. Also, uh, funnily enough, Galway is also the home to the Mockness Performance Company, which is now really world-renowned. They do uh, parades in all over the world, in New York and everywhere. And they often managed the parade uh, for St. Patrick's Day and there were these really avant-garde, visually stunning spectacles. So you'd have this kind of, you know, parochial element uh, and school bands and whatnot. And then this really ultra-modern, innovative side too. So that was really great, I think. When I was a kid, I often would have spent the day at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Greystones, County Wicklow. So a little town just outside of Dublin Mm. a lot of aspects of the town would have been represented in the parade so there might have been emergency services and like a few local businesses maybe with kind of makeshift floats and my family are sailors so we were the boat people so we used to drag sometimes like a few dinghies down through the parade down the main street of the town which was frankly pretty heavy (laughs) but great fun I do remember there might have been a few older people who might have spent the day in the pub But honestly, there wasn't the same sense that this was primarily a festival of drinking by any means. (laughs) So Tim, why don't we fill in a little bit about who St. Patrick really was and what the whole day is about? Yeah, actually, I know, I thought I knew everything about this already. But when I looked into research for this episode, there were quite a few things that popped up that I'd never heard before. Mm. So first of all, then St. Patrick, he was a real person. He lived in about the 4th or the 5th century, roundabouts. Famously, he wasn't Irish, of course. Yeah, yeah, sometimes people say that uh, kind of smugly, <laughs> you know. Uh, but it's that's actually kind of the whole point of his story, really. Uh, no, he wasn't Irish. He was, he was a Roman citizen. Mm. He grew up probably in Roman Wales, though some people suggest he was from France. And according to his own autobiography called The Confessions of St. Patrick. Uh, He was captured by Irish pirates when he was a teenager and brought back to Ireland as a slave. Of course, at that time, Ireland was not in the Roman Empire, unlike Britain. So this would have kind of been like going into the wilderness, like being taken out of all known civilization. Mm. And I I seem to remember that he worked there for a few years tending sheep. Is that right? Right. Yeah, I think um, six or seven years. I don't remember. But he, he eventually escaped back home anyway, after all of it. Yay. 
escape. Yes, well, yay, indeed. You would think so. But young St. Patrick seems to have somehow undergone like a, a kind of Stockholm Syndrome episode. And uh, he returned to Ireland of his own will as a Christian missionary. And he wanted to convert the population, which of course was uh, still not Christianized yet. Or maybe he thought we were just in dire need of it. <laughs> so did he manage to do it? Well, somebody did. He probably did a fair bit too. Uh, we actually can't really know for sure. That book that he wrote himself, his autobiography, is mostly about this big fallout he has with bishops back in Britain. Okay. They they possibly, it seems, potentially accused him of cooking the books a bit with the finances on his Irish mission. So he had a stray hand in the collection or what? <laughs> yeah. I mean, we don't really know. But he, he primarily actually had to write this account of his life because some people at this time were threatening to expose this super big sin he had apparently committed in his youth. Mm-hmm. Now, he never tells us exactly what the sin is. Let's face it, it's probably a tired love affair. Oh my goodness, maybe he got someone pregnant or something. I'd love to know. <laughs> you can't say that about St. Patrick, Naomi. Why not? <laughs> you totally did. <laughs> so anyway, the rest of the Patrick legend is probably fabrication, mostly. About 200 years after Patrick was well dead and gone, a guy called Muraku Maku Makahaney uh, wrote... <laughs> there's a name. There's, there's a name for you. I'm, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it correctly. He wrote a big long story about him. Um, and he kind of transformed St. Patrick into an idealized patron saint. So, you know, at that time, an ideal patron saint would perform all these miracles and feats of bravery. And that's where we get lots of the Patrick stories from. Okay, so is this where we're getting the famous story of how he used the shamrock, which is why the shamrock is this Irish symbol, to explain the Holy Trinity. So it has the three leaves, you know, and that that represents the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost all in one thing the shamrock. Right. Yes, yeah, clever metaphor as you as you can imagine. And of course, this is why we still use the shamrock today as a symbol of St. Patrick and then later on as a symbol of Ireland as a whole. The chief idea of Mercu's biography, interestingly, was to connect Patrick with the city of Armagh, where Murakou's people, the, o- the O'Neill dynasty, that's where they held power. Mm. And the O'Neills wanted to keep the church authorities in Ulster around Armagh. So Murakou rewrote Patrick's life, basically saying that Patrick had founded a church in Armagh and that Patrick had pronounced it the most holy church in Ireland, so that it had to be the ecclesiastical capital. Okay, so it's a power play by Clever mm, Murakou. Clever Murakou indeed. In fact, the head of both the Catholic and Protestant churches in Ireland are still in Armagh to this day. Success! Well, getting back to the parade, I think I'm right in saying that the idea of holding parade on St. Patrick's Day didn't actually come from Ireland, but started in the USA. Yeah, it is true. Uh, The first parade wasn't actually until 1766, and it was in New York. Mm. But it really took off in the mid-19th century. And that's the time when hundreds of thousands of Irish immigrants would have been flooding into Manhattan in particular. Uh, There were loads and loads of charitable organisations at that time that had been set up by the Irish who were already in New York uh, in order to help the new incoming famine refugees. Mm. So all those organizations would join this parade together. And by 1848, which is, you know, uh, very much the height of the famine, I suppose, uh, the New York parade had already become the largest parade in the USA and one of the largest public parades on the planet. Wow. So Mm. this tradition, uh, that's where it all starts from, I guess. Mm. So Paddy's Day is still a huge celebration in the States, of course, among people of Irish heritage and not. And listeners, we have to take this opportunity to do our part <laughs> in the great Patty Paddy controversy. <laughs> so many listeners asked us to mention this, so we'll be murdered if we don't bring it up. The Irish diminutive of Patrick is Paddy, Paddy. with a double D, not 
patty. Not patty. Double T. Um, and you, you'll often hear that uh, in America and abroad. It's not patty, but it's gotten confused. And you can see how the transfer happened because the sounds are, they're very similar in an American accent. But for some reason, that double T, it like, it like hits a rage switch in Irish people's <laughs> brains. Um, probably because it sounds like, you know, an uncooked burger. Yeah, indeed. Or, or the diminutive of Patricia. No. Indeed. <laughs> um, the reason for that double D in paddy, uh, is because the Irish diminutive probably comes from the Irish form, the name Porrick. That's spelled P-A-D-R-A-I-G. Yeah. You'll, you'll hear the D pronounced in some dialects of Irish. I think in the Northern dialect, they say Podrick. Oh, I see. Mm. So anyway, the parade culture kind of made its way back into Ireland from America, a bit like Halloween, actually, which we looked at um, in a previous episode. And so there are these huge big parades up and down the country now, the biggest, of course, being in the capital in Dublin, where it has a whole week-long festival. Yeah, I suppose they're getting the most out of it as possible. You know, this thing is a huge draw for tourists, so you can't really blame them for going full steam ahead. Yes, but you might not see many Dubliners in the city centre that day, as there's loads of locals who just stay out of the mayhem. Mm. It can get a bit messy, and of course, there's a lot of drinking. Yeah, and funnily enough, this uh, tradition of, you know, drunken debauchery on St. Patrick's Day is also relatively new in Ireland. Uh, In fact, it was actually illegal to sell alcohol on St. Patrick's Day in the Republic of Ireland until 1961. So there you go. I've heard that the association with debauchery probably stems from the fact that Catholics often took the day off from Lent on St. Patrick's Mm. Day. So you could kind of indulge in all those luxuries that you'd given up for Lent, but you only had one day to do it. But of course, there's also a political slant to it. And that's ties in with this idea of the drunken, anarchic, dangerous Irish immigrant in particular. Right. And this goes back at the same time to those massive waves of Irish immigrants that were arriving in Britain and in the United States during the famine. Uh, There was a huge hostility towards those immigrants at the time. Mm. These were people who were half starved, they were unskilled, they were often riddled with disease before they even got off the boats. And of course, they were speaking only Irish a lot of the time. And of course, in the beginning, they would have set themselves up in the sprawling, you know, very disease-ridden tenements uh, in the cities of East Coast America, which would have become immediately crime black spots. So the Mm. Irish didn't have much of a chance of making a reputation for themselves. Mm. And also at that time, uh, it's easy to forget that America was still a really staunchly Protestant place. And loads of Americans were terrified that these famine immigrants represented a veritable, you know, organized Catholic invasion. And there were conspiracy theories about this, and they were kind of everywhere. There were anti-Catholic riots by some Protestant groups like the quote-unquote know-nothings, who used to, you know, burn down Catholic churches and the like. So back in the 19th century, seeing all these thousands of Catholics, like, parading in a kind Hmm. of military way down the the centre of Manhattan, that can't have been particularly appealing to, to the wasps. Yeah, certainly not. Uh, I think that's best seen in some of the anti-Irish illustrations, like those of the illustrator Thomas Nast. Uh, He has one sketch in particular from 1867 called St. Patrick's Day. Oh, yeah, you can probably find it online if you Google it, listeners. So it shows all these like monstrous simian Irish maniacs who are like viciously attacking the human-faced police. And in one corner, it says the word rum. And in the other corner, it says blood, kind of implying that the Irish were thirsty for both. Mm. And and if you look at the picture, uh, you'll notice that the clothes that they're wearing are actually quite significant. Those crumpled top hats and tailed coats and those kind of lamb chop beards. There's a reason that they're wearing these because those were old-fashioned clothes in the mid-19th century. So it's a kind of joke about Irish provincialism. And of course, those same clothes are familiar to us still today from caricatures of the leprechaun. 
Yeah, you know, Irish people don't tend to mind too much, but the leprechaun character is kind of offensive. So you'll often see them with these like exaggerated sort of monkey-like features, the same as in that sketch, actually. And that was a 19th century way of saying that the Irish were less evolved human beings. You can see the exact same thing in racist characters of African-Americans, for example, from the same time. Right. The, the crux of all this was a very popular idea in ethnography that Celtic peoples, um, so to speak, had less self-control and that the more logical Anglo-Saxons had to govern them for their own good. You know, it's, mm. it's just a standard colonial justification, really. It's very convenient, yeah. <laughs> yes, it does, isn't it just? Um, but this really informed this idea that St. Patrick's Day, Ireland's National Day, would, you know, naturally be a carnival of chaos and of anarchy. Democrat Congressman uh, Joe Kennedy III, who was, of course, part of that great Catholic Irish dynasty of politicians in America, the the Kennedys, brought up this anti-Irish sentiment uh, last year, actually, when he gave his St. Patrick's Day speech, and he connected it with Trump's current immigration law. So let's take a listen to that. This family's name is Kennedy. Struggling immigrants whose quest for a better life took them from Ireland's potato famine to Boston's immigrant barriers. My father has a memory of my great-grandmother Rose that he shared with me once. He was playing outside with friends one day when she called him in. He fidgeted around and impatiently tried to sit still. As she pulled out a big scrapbook and flipped to a stack of carefully folded newspapers in the back. One after another, she opened them up to the help wanted section. There, she pointed to ad after ad marked in big block letters, no Irish need apply. My grandmother's message was clear. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget the blood and the sweat and the tears that generations before you have shed so that you would never feel a sting of prejudice. We face a threat unlike almost any other we have seen in recent history. A president who has built an entire campaign and now an administration on scapegoating immigrant families. We have watched President Trump threaten our most fundamental American values with border walls and bad hombres. We have heard his racial epithets. We have seen cold-hearted executive orders. We have stood in horror as his administration sweeps the country with raids that appear unprecedented in their utter disregard for family, community, and common decency. Which is why I stand here today on the eve of St. Patrick's Day, the proud son of Irish immigrants and the humble beneficiary of our country's golden doors to deliver a message to immigrant families. President Trump does not speak for all of us, and his immigration policies are opposed by leaders in Washington who do not take your patriotism for granted. We understand your willingness to walk to the ends of the earth to navigate oceans and mountains and deserts and war zones because every parent would do the same. We know what you've risked to give them a better future, to sacrifice to be part of our United States. So in some ways, it's a pity that that stereotype of like drunken madness that comes from a time of discrimination has lived on and come to define St. Patrick's Day, because it does give a bad name to one of the best things about Ireland, which is the Irish pub. Hmm. So pubs have a very ancient history in Ireland, and they've been around for centuries at least. And they have a very central function in 
in communities and villages. Yeah, uh, up until recently enough, most of them would have been combined with grocery stores or post offices or some other secondary function. And they were gathering places, really, for, for people of the community, while also serving very practical functions. Some are still like that today. Yeah, for example, it would have been traditional for the publican to also be the undertaker. And there's one pub in Tipperary that still combines those two functions. <laughs> they also catered to travellers. So up until about uh, 1960, there was a law uh, for some designated coach houses. And this was that if a customer had travelled more than three miles or five miles in Dublin, they were considered a bona fide traveller. And that meant they could get a drink outside normal trading hours. As you can imagine, I'm sure lots of people quickly saw ample room for loopholes in that three-mile law. Yeah, it didn't really function as intended as soon as Dublin had a tram system, basically. (laughs) So people were making like drunk pilgrimages to get, you know, to bona fide pubs. But it took quite a while to get it off the books. Lots of people even ran kind of underground pubs out of their own houses, which were called she-beans. And that's where you'd often find Puchin, which is an illegal home-brewed moonshine, and that can be up to 80% pure alcohol, or more sometimes. You mix it with milk, I understand, Tim. Do you drink it often? I have have partaken of the Puchin, (laughs) (laughs) Naomi, but I'll say no more than that. Apparently, my granddad had a special trick to make nice Puchin, which was to heat up a poker very, very hot and then stick it in the Puchin so it sizzled. And that was the that was the final touch for uh, oh. for your best pushing. Mm. Oh, I wanted it to burn off some of the alcohol. Maybe it did. Yeah. Mm. Take the edge off. (laughs) So there are some very ancient pubs in Ireland. So, for example, Sean's Bar in Athlone, it underwent renovation and they found some of the walls were made of wattle and daub. So like the prehistoric (laughs) building technique. Right. And like, you know, for anyone who's actually been there, you'd never guess it, like from the exterior, that this this pub is made of bloody Neolithic style materials. <laughs> Sean's has a claim to be the oldest pub in Ireland and it says that it dates from 900 AD. So that's as old almost as the Book of Kells. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So did you know, Tim, that sometimes court cases can be held in pubs? So like, I'm not talking about back in the day. I'm talking like 2016. <laughs> no way. <laughs> yes. So due to the lack of availability of a proper district court in Killaloo, County Clare, uh, court sittings have until very recently been held in the Brian Maru pub, which is a pub I might mention where you and I have had a pint. Ah, yeah, I remember it well. That was a lovely pint. Thank you, uh, Brian Maru pub. We'll be back. So here is a sample from a report in the Irish Times of one such court sitting in 2016. Quote, On Tuesday, Guinness and Heineken taps at the bar were visible to those in the court and there were disco lights over the head of Judge Patrick Durkin. Oh my God, Naomi, don't tell people this. It doesn't help our national stereotype discussion at all. I'm afraid, Tim, that our national image has already been well blackened in this regard, Tim, because Mm. in 2014, this particular pub court had a distinguished guest. Oh God, don't tell me. Yes, it was the niece of Ralph Lauren, the fashion designer. So she's a woman called Jenny Lauren and she owns a jewellery business. It just so happened that she was on a flight from Barcelona to New York and she had a bit of an air raid fit incident. God, what'd she do? So she allegedly called an air hostess an ugly blonde bitch. Oh, classy. <laughs> and she chased staff through the first class area. <laughs> but anyway, the outcome was that the flight had to be diverted to Shannon Airport and she was taken off the plane. Oh god, I don't remember any of this. Mustn't have been mustn't have been her day. <laughs> yeah. So when Gardie arrived and arrested her at Shannon Airport, she reportedly said to them, Can you say that in English, please? Oh. Yes. So she reportedly thought that she was in Spain. Oh no. 
no. Oh, God. Yeah, so that is how Ralph Lauren's niece ended up on trial in the Brian Baru pub outside Killaloo, which isn't far from Shannon, of course. Mm. She was ultimately fined €2,000 by Judge Patrick Durkin, the man of the disco lights. <laughs> I'm sure she could afford it. I'd like to say at least that she kept her dignity, but I don't know if I can give her that. <laughs> Tim, what's the most far away from Ireland Irish pub that you've ever come across? Uh, let me see. I I think I, I've definitely seen an Irish pub in Hong Kong, but I don't think I ever went in. I'm not surprised you saw one in Hong Kong because they are all over the world. And I'm going to tell you the story about how that happened. Go on, hit me. It all started in 1991. 1991. So that's, I mean, that's pretty recent. Yes. Yeah, so there were, of course, international Irish pubs before that, but not as we know it. So the Irish pub is a kind of international commodity was only really made possible when the conflict began to die down in Northern Ireland. So before that, they didn't really have the welcoming image that they have today, Mm. especially in the UK. So, for example, the police and the big brewing companies actually opposed Irish pubs openly advertising themselves as such on the outside for two decades after the Birmingham pub bombings in 1974. The rationale for that was that there could be another attack and then the Irish pubs could be the target of reprisals. Right. So this friendly, safe Irish pub image that we have is pretty recent, I suppose. Yes, very much so. So there's a very particular reason why some people date the birth of the Irish pub as we know it to 1991, because that was the date when the Irish pub company was formed. So this would go on to popularise Irish pubs all over the world, working in tandem with a very particular brewing company, Guinness. Ah, of course, Guinness. I, I'm I'm a major Guinness fan, as you know, Naomi. So if you're listening, the CEOs of Guinness, um, <laughs> we will totally accept a major sponsorship deal. We want the Diageo daughter. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're, we're kidding, not kidding, though. Um, but anyway, Guinness found they were kind of get, having trouble getting people to try Guinness and to buy it in places outside of Ireland. So they came up with this idea of getting Irish pubs set up around the world, like to kind of give a setting where someone might have the idea to get some Guinness. So there's got to be Guinness memorabilia all around the place and this is called the Guinness Irish Pub concept trademarked and it was designed by the Irish pub company for Guinness. Wow I suppose that in some respects is pretty depressing. It's definitely seeing how the sausages are made. I spoke to the Irish pub company who are still around and they told me that they estimate they're behind somewhere between 40 and 50 percent of Irish pubs in the United States. Hmm. So they have made thousands of pubs around the world and they advise anyone who's interested in setting one up basically to go to an underserved area so somewhere where there isn't an Irish pub already and they will do everything they will design and build you a pub that's ready to go so the pubs are actually what you're saying that they're built in Ireland and they're exported brick by brick like pretty much so the pubs are customized based on a template so they have a few templates and they help you come up with like an Irishy name and a story behind the <laughs> pub and then you can choose from one of these styles so they've got like country style which is sort of stone walls and like farming equipment God. there's Victorian style which is like the classic Dublin pub you know with the dark wood and the ornament and stuff. Then there's the Celtic style, which is loads of instruments and like Celtic fonts and stuff. <laughs> Shop style, brewery, and the newest edition is called gastro style. Uh, well, I suppose that's the most cynical of them all. <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing a traditional Irish pub isn't, it's a restaurant, really. Exactly. Eating in pubs is not traditional at all in Ireland, although it's starting to come in in a big way. So the whole thing has become a major international industry. So there's an Irish pubs global federation, which has like an award ceremony of Irish pubs. And the founder of the whole thing, the man who came up with the Guinness Irish pub concept and the CEO of the Irish pub 
company is called Mel McNally. So this is the the man behind the curtain. Mm-hmm, the very guy. So he spoke at an event last year, and let's hear what he had to say. Just a little bit of history. We were a partner to Guinness in the creation of the concept. Uh, we thought both thought it was a great business opportunity, and we researched the Irish pub. Uh, intensely for two years all through the country and we categorized it. We created a strong beverage brand, a strong beverage outlet which uh, had a wide variety of customer acceptance for all age groups and various cultures. So they really have spread virally and there's a very good reason for that which is basically they work. They Mm. work in loads of different countries, loads of different cultural uh, settings. They make money for people. They're good businesses. So if you think about it, like the whole concept of an Irish pub is that people go and they stay, like they stay Mm. and they buy loads of drink and they keep coming back to the same place. It becomes their local. Right. So this is really a perfect moneymaker in lots of ways. Um, So Naomi, is this kind of problematic for us? Like, how do we feel about the the boxing and selling of Irish culture under like, uh, you know, the country style or gastro style as a, as a marketing concept. So there's actually like an entire subset of academic literature that examines this very question. Hmm. So it examines like the use of the idea of Irishness and authenticity to create these Irish pubs that have been so successful. So a lot of Irish people, of course, are very deeply suspicious of anything that seems like it's phony or like it's dishonestly pretending to be Irish. So I was quite interested to hear Mr. Irish Pub himself, Mel McNally, articulate that himself. The ripple effect took us all over the world. The Irish Pub Company and Guinness travelled the world. We did our workshops, but many have followed us now. Many have copied, some have plagiarised, and some are compromising the concept. We look at Brazil every Every pub in Brazil is called something O'Malley's or Max something, and it's an Irish pub. There's nothing Irish about it. So we've got to be strong about what we say the Irish pub is. The way I see it, Tim, is like, okay, I know there are going to be some crappy, like totally plastic, inauthentic, horrible Irish pubs that, you know, are kind of using stereotypical Irish stuff to sell beer. And like, I wouldn't like it there. Yeah, for sure. But there's this huge flip side. So like Irish pubs around the world primarily are the success stories of Irish entrepreneurs. They're also a huge direct employer of Irish immigrants everywhere. And they also provide like hubs of social support for immigrants as well. Mm. I don't know about you, Tim, but like if I see an Irish flag flying and a friendly Irish pub, I'm like, oh, there's my local embassy. (laughs) Well, yeah, I don't know. It It definitely depends on the pub. That's true. It does depend on the pub. But it's... It is like a huge asset having this network, like as an Irish person. So they advertise Ireland for one, like a lot of people mm, wouldn't true. know about our little country, you know, but they they find out about it because there are these places everywhere, which is like, that's kind of a soft power. And it's also good hmm. for attracting tourists. I hadn't thought about that. But also like in practical terms for Irish people, like for example, my sister um came to visit me when I lived in London, she got lost. And she found an Irish pub and went into it. And the old barman who was from Kerry, like, made her a cup of tea and, and lent her the phone and, you know, like, looked after <laughs> her. And she almost, you know, she almost cried. She was so relieved. Like, it's a real thing. Yeah, I suppose those pubs as well also serve a, serve a massive role in getting jobs for people. Like, aside from the fact that you could get a job in the pub, you can also make contacts to get other jobs. Uh, I know lots of people have done that. And almost everyone in Ireland knows somebody who's worked in an Irish pub abroad. If 
they haven't done it themselves. Yeah, I came across a study on this, which touched on this, by an academic called Judy Scully, and it's in the, the Journal of Ethnic and Migration Studies. So she actually examined Irish pubs in Birmingham and Chicago, and she found that employers came to the pubs directly to hire people, hmm. particularly in the building trade. So they'd turn up to recruit people. And they, they were particularly important for illegal Irish immigrants who were working in the black economy. Oh, well, how, how very handy. You get a pint of Guinness and a job. Yeah, exactly. Pretty much. So um, it's a really interesting study, actually, because she also looked at how the Irish owners of the pubs were using their heritage and their Irishness and their accents and like their chat as a selling point. And customers came for that, like Irish ones and non-Irish ones alike. So the owners were like using and playing up their Irishness as a kind of strength. Mm, right. That That's so interesting, actually. I, I guess it's um it's all to do with who has the power when the stereotype is being played up and who's benefiting. Yeah, exactly. I actually know an Irishman, I'll, I'll leave his name out of it, but uh, who, who said that he was fired from an Irish pub for not acting Irish enough. <laughs> that's <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> He's got like flaming red hair and a red beard. Just wasn't enough. Kind of oppressive. You failed our Irishness test. Get out. <laughs> our our French <laughs> Irishness test. God's sake. <laughs> well, Tim, I got to experience the Irish pub as an asset in a very vivid way recently when I was traveling with my family. I made a visit to the Blarney Stone pub in Panama City to make a report. And we're glad to say that this segment has been very kindly sponsored by Kyle Lairfeld, who would like to give a shout out to Gaeltacht, Minnesota. Uh, that is an Irish language group in the Twin Cities, which has been going on for decades and is run by Will Kenny. So a big happy St. Patrick's Day to all of you there in Minnesota. Let's hear from your report, Naomi. It was carnival season in Panama City. I nipped into a side street away from the parade. I knew I'd reached my destination when I saw the sign. Two crossed hurleys and the name, the Blarney Stone. Here in Panama, the little country famous for its canal that links the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific, I had found an Irish pub. I stepped inside to meet some of the customers and asked them, why seek out an Irish pub in Panama City? Okay, my name is Antonio Perez. I am from Venezuela. I am 25 years old. I'm an English teacher here in Panama. Um, I love the Irish pub because I love the music. I love the beer. And I came here for St. Patrick two years ago, and it was the most amazing party I've ever been. And I really like the, the place because the people are really nice and beers are great and I really like it. And like, is it like an international mix or what kind of mix of nationalities is it? Well, here we are Venezuelans and one person from Panama and one from Guatemala. I want to move to Ireland. <laughs> uh, my name is Sosovsky Caro. I am 28 years old. Um, this is actually my first time in an Irish uh, pub. Uh, yeah, um, I just came with my friends. And um, I actually like the environment. <laughs> and so, like, as a first-time visitor to an Irish pub, like, what's your impression? How does it seem to you? Um, it's pretty lively because there's, there's like, like, the music going on and just a whole bunch of friends just telling stories. So I imagine it's pretty much like this in Ireland, just a little bit louder. Uh, but it just, it just every, when you get into the mood, you know, it just, you just, you know, you raise your voice and everybody's having, you know, you see everybody having fun. Just like my friend here, I also want to move to Ireland someday in the future. It's just like such a beautiful country. I love Jameson whiskey, so that's why I'm here. <laughs> Would you like seek out an Irish pub back home, like to go to? 
We have one. Uh, back home in Wausau, Wisconsin, we have two Irish pubs. Mm-hmm. We do indeed. Why do you think they're so prolific all over the world? Because they're a friendly place to be. You can get a conversation going with anyone. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, my name is Robert Healy. I'm just pretty much passing through Panama, going on holidays, heading to Colombia and Ecuador. And how did you end up here tonight? Uh, Google. <laughs> no, actually, I was in here last night. I just pretty much Googled Irish bars just for something different and came down and met the friendly owner and had a good laugh last night and wandered down today to pay my bill. <laughs> uh, anytime we go in a, out of state or out of the country, we try to go to an Irish pub wherever it is because usually get the same thing every time. Good beer, good people, good food. What do you think is behind that like strong international brand? What? How do you think that happened for Ireland? Because uh, Irish people are awesome and they know how to entertain. They, song, uh, they sing and they dance and they make you laugh. I mean, why not? We were out drinking and uh, one of the lad who I lived with stumbled upon this place and we've never been to another bar since. This is the only place we've come. I was going to leave and if it weren't for this bar, uh, I'd have left Panama a while ago. It's the friendliest place. It's just full of people that have immigrated. You've got England, American Island and it's just a friendly place. So everyone's here to have a good time. It's the nicest bar I've been to. I'm sure everybody that comes here tonight will tell you the exact same. You got the Irish music playing, everyone's dancing, the pool tables on. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. There's people dancing. This is honestly, it's one of the best places to be in Panama. This place. Absolutely, I agree. It's friendly. The owner is awesome. You couldn't ask for a, a better environment. I love it here. This is the place to go if you want to meet people, expats from all over the world. This is the place to go. How do you think the Irish cornered that market? You know, I think there was used to be a British pub right around the corner oh, here. There's, one, there's, a, there's an English bar around the corner. Right around the London corner there. here, but, but it doesn't compare to All the, the Blarney. So. The Irish bar. Nah. All the English drink at the Irish bar. The owner of the Blarney Stone is Alan O'Connell, and he hails from Cork. He told me he decided to open a pub in Panama City because, well, there wasn't one there before. One of our goals was to try and introduce the Irish pub culture to the Panamanians because they obviously wouldn't know about it, you know. Uh, and slowly but surely we've gotten there, you know. So we have we have a, we have a lot of Panamanian customers that are that are, have become regulars. You know, it took them a while when they came in; they looked a little bit funny because. People jump around here, they'll sing, sing, sing along with the songs, have a bit of crack, and that, that's not normal for Panamanians. But after a while, it became, it, you know, it became their second home as well. In any city, an Irish pub is a place where people connect with each other, without, without a doubt, no matter where you're from. We, we, we've noticed that if you look around here, on the backs of all the chairs, you'll see the names of the regulars, you know, and, and they're from probably, I'd say, 25 different countries. What do you think are the key ingredients for an Irish pub? What do you need to make it work, in your opinion? Number one, an Irish owner. Alan's wife, Louisa, is from Panama herself and she runs the pub with him. I asked her, what was the attraction for locals? It's a different thing for Panamanians. And, um, I mean, people love it. They, they love, it's not only the Irish uh, uh, pub, it's just the culture behind it. You know, it's, it, that's what makes it very, very different and unique. Do you think it's like a good sort of uh, advertisement or like brand recognition for Ireland, the country itself? Do you think people kind of get to know? Definitely, definitely. I mean, every person that comes here 
as soon as they walk in, you know, they can they can see the green. I mean, you, you can't get more Irish than uh, green walls and all the pictures of, you know, like ba- Irish bands or, you know, the, au- the authors. Like, yeah, it's a great thing. It's a great thing. I think a lot of the people, especially Panamanians that have come to the bar, that have visited the bar, after they walk you know, from the bar, they have a better understanding about Irish culture and what it's about, you know. So, yeah. On the night I visited, I went with my dad, Niall. Now, I knew my dad enjoys a Guinness, but for the first time, I got to hear how it all began. I have to be honest, where I was first introduced to Guinness was my my, my family had a pub down in Killarney. And they used to say that Guinness was good for you was one of the advertising slogans. So it was given to women who are pregnant because it felt that it would increase the amount of iron that they needed. Jesus. Yeah. And also, um, I was given it because I was coming down from Dublin and I looked very scrawny in comparison to all these country people who were well fed. (laughs) So I was given a glass of Guinness every day from about the age of 11 on to try and build me up a bit. But unfortunately, I I stayed the same size, but I developed a taste for the Guinness. (laughs) For context might help to know that my dad is about maybe five foot three. But the Blarney Stone isn't in fact a Guinness pub. It doesn't even have Guinness on tap, something that angers the occasional visitor, at least according to their TripAdvisor reviews. Instead, they sell bottled Guinness that is made in Panama by a local brewery on behalf of Guinness. It didn't pass much muster with my dad. Oh, wow, it's pretty rough. <laughs> it's, uh, it's very bitter. It's got a kick that's very bitter. Uh, do you want to taste it? Taste it and see. Now you might be asking how I ended up in Panama City in the first place. It's a long story and I'll spare you the details, but the reason I ended up in the Blarney Stone in particular was because it was just a few minutes away from a hospital. A member of my family was taken ill when I was away. It was an unfamiliar place. We were working with a system that was unfamiliar to us and suddenly everything was thrown into upheaval. As I was chatting away to a customer in the Blarney Stone, I looked around. Alan, the owner, had his arm around my dad and he was telling him if there was anything he could do to help, he would. And there was a whole network of people, Irish, Panamanian and everything in between, who had our backs if we needed them. <laughs> I, 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 I'm not in an observed lesson. <laughs> I was telling him last night he could pay him Pete. <laughs> Jesus. And where would you get that in Panama? <laughs> where would you get that in Panama? Oh, Naomi, that was lovely. That That is amazing to see that kind of community spirit halfway across the world in Panama. Absolutely. So, Tim, what would you say is like the key element of authenticity for an Irish pub? Ooh, well, uh, definitely a bugbear of mine are TVs. Oh, if you ask me, you can't have any TVs in a, in a proper pub. Mm. And you would know you're from Galway, the, the capital of good Irish pubs. Right, well, I mean, you know, the, now that you say that, I was home recently uh, enough and lots of the lovely old pubs have now installed these massive TVs. Oh, that's so sad. Um, and- It is sad, but you can't really blame them, right? You know, because they're getting all these punters in to watch these big sporting events and Mm. uh, like it's a massive money-making opportunity. But it does just totally destroy the atmosphere, Mm. uh, especially if you're not interested in football. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I am fond of the odd match myself now and I will definitely be watching from my local on Saturday as Ireland inevitably smash England in the Six Nations final. 
Although we already won, so, you know, it doesn't matter. But for the pride, Tim, for the pride. But, of course, typically, uh, traditionally, Irish pubs don't have TVs. They don't have dartboards either, um, or slot machines like you often see in UK pubs. A good pub, in my opinion, doesn't need any of the gear, doesn't need any clay pots or ploughs or anything, any any of the of the tack. It just needs to be an optimum place to sit and drink a good pint and have a very long chat with your friends and not much else, really. Oh, and, of course, an occasional trad session doesn't really hurt. I completely agree that it's all about the ability to talk. But my big bugbear is trad that's presented as trad, but they all have like a big microphone and sound system rig up. <laughs> like it, in my in my ideal Irish pub, the big speakers and amps and stuff are completely forbidden. In a closed, cozy environment like a pub, the instruments are already at the perfect right volume. So if you blast it out, it's not proper trad in my view. Like <laughs> the good trad session is casual, like other musicians can just like casually drop in and like join the session and other tables can keep up their conversation or listen in, you know, if they, as they want. I see a theme here, Naomi. <laughs> Irish pubs are about talking and human connections. So yeah, screens and speakers to the minimum, please. Well, Tim, the Irish pub concept actually has some key guidelines for pubs around the world to help them to pull it off. So there's a wealth of information that they offer and they offer everything from like sample interview questions to ask your staff to like creating a business plan, all sorts. But they also have a section called maintaining authenticity. (laughs) Oh, the irony. Um, (laughs) uh, Can you have authenticity if you are following uh, mass produced guidelines produced by a huge international viewing company? Like this is an excellent question, Tim, but but hold off your your cynicism until you hear Mm. some of them. Okay, so here are some guidelines. For example, one, do I try to engage with local Irish related societies and communities or do I ignore them? That's one question publicans are asked to to ask themselves. Another one is, do I allow my marketing and promotional material to reflect the premium offering that I make to my consumers? Or is the material predominantly green and filled with references to leprechauns and shamrocks? <laughs> Good question to ask yourself. Yes. And finally, do I go to Ireland every couple of years to refresh my knowledge? Or do I just rely on that one visit seven years ago? Okay. All right. So they don't really sound like bad guidelines. It's a it's a little bit like um pub mindfulness. <laughs> pub mindfulness, yeah. But like, I mean, like, I'm kind of hopeful, you know, that like having read this stuff that actually they probably know what they're doing and they can probably mm. make a pretty nice pub based on this stuff. But sure. anyway, the funny thing is, Tim... Reading this stuff reminded me of something that I'd seen and I looked it up and listened to this. Okay, this is from the instructions of King Cormac MacArt. And it's so this is basically a collection of old sayings, which is attributed to an ancient Irish king. These were collected in 14th century. Okay, go for it. Okay, so the story goes that King Cormac MacArt was asked, what are the duties of a chief and of an alehouse? And this is what the old king said. Not hard to tell, said Cormac. Good behaviour around a good chief. Lights for lamps. Exerting oneself to the company. Settling seats. Liberality of dispensers. A nimble hand at distributing. Attentive service. Music in moderation. Short storytelling. A joyous countenance. Welcome to companies. Silence during a recital. Harmonious choruses. These are the Jews of chief and of an alehouse, said Cormac. Okay, so that is a 14th century maintaining authenticity guide, pretty much. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) 
Maybe things haven't changed that much after all. Listeners, we told you the Irish pub had a long history and clearly we weren't joking. Absolutely. That's all we have time for today, but thanks so much for tuning in and a very happy St. Patrick's Day to you. Law Ella Porikonayev. Go and celebrate it in whatever Irish pub feels authentic to you. Don't forget to sign up on Patreon to get access to our exclusive Half Point series. The address is patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport or there's a link on our website. You can tweet us at at Passport Irish. We're also on Facebook and you can find all the links that you need on our website www.theirishpassport.com Thanks so much for listening. Slán. <laughs>